0: turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, we are going to read a famous passage. That young man's enthusiasm really sets this up because we're going to read a famous passage. This is a passage that many of you may have on plaque. It may be on your wall. This may be on your screensaver, on your phone. This is a, a famous passage in our culture. Jeremiah 29 says, This is God speaking to his people. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Good verse. This is one of these things. This is a declaration where God is unveiling his mind towards his people And we have the choice of whether we believe God's comments or not. So our response to this, it's an act of faith. I do believe that God's thoughts about me, that they're not evil. He is not looking after my destruction. He's not looking after calamity in my life. But he is looking to bring about hope and confidence out of me in him and his nature, his character, his actions. This is a, a verse that I really do legitimately feel every single human being can own as God's promise to them individually. But this verse is also spoken in a context. If you look at the beginning of chapter 29 of Jeremiah, and this is what adds weight The idea, the word glory means weighty, it means heavy. This is how heavy and glorious these words are. It says, now these words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. And I'd encourage you to read the context, the rest of what's being said there, because it is, it's is—it's fabulous. But here's the weight. God is sending this message to individuals who are sitting in the midst of calamity and disaster. They would define the context of their life and what has happened to their family members, their friends, and their culture as evil. Some of them would be sitting in confusion. How could God, how could a good God allow something like this to happen? But when you sit in the biblical context and you understand what God has been doing throughout generations in the nation of Israel, this is the consequence that he promised if human beings stood in opposition to him in being rebellious to him he said that he was going to bring this about and he was faithful to his word so we sit in this it's not opposing counsel but and it's not opposing ideas but you're sitting in god bringing about intentional calamity in individuals and in a culture in a time and then he's telling that same culture that is living in the midst of slavery in a foreign nation, my thoughts towards you are not evil. They are not for disaster. I have a future for you. I have a plan. I have a purpose. My thoughts to you, they're good. They're kind. They're compassionate. They're merciful. They're true. Even in judgment, even in consequence. So I've titled this morning's sermon, Intentions. You know what it's like to have good intentions in an action, behavior? You're setting out with the right motivation, good intentions in your life, and you fail, right? But I, me- I meant to do right. The result just wasn't good. We're going to sit in, in a verse in Second Samuel. Go ahead and turn there. We're in Second Samuel 17 this morning. We're going to sit in a verse that is the exact opposite of what God is telling the culture during Jeremiah's day as he's talking to, uh, well, as as the events are being brought about in David's day and Absalom's life. We're told God's intent, his purpose, was to bring about calamity and disaster in Absalom's life. But I, I just said, I think that this is a verse in Jeremiah 11, 29, 11, that every individual can own as a promise from God on their own. So why would God have a thoughts of peace in my life but thoughts of calamity in another person's life? And the issue comes to what is the individual's heart in regards to their relationship with God? Because if you are for God... If you are seeking him, and that's in Jeremiah 29, that, that context continues, if you seek him, you will find him. He will be your savior, he will be gracious, he will be merciful. He will absolutely passionately love you and provide for you in every context of your life. That's an expression of faith. God, I believe that and I trust that. But if you want to be a rebel, if you want to be stubborn, if you want to shake your fist at God, don't think that you're going to stand into and look at the face of a friend as you interact with God in that experience. Because if you want to go against him and against his will, he will stand in your way as your adversary. Absalom is going against the will of God in this scene. He is seeking to and has successfully seized the throne of Israel from his father David. There's all different kinds of reasons why we're not going to rehash that, so um, we're just going to jump right into the middle of a context. But Absalom is standing in rebellion against his dad. Ultimately, he is in rebellion against God, but he's captured the hearts of the people and the culture, and his coup has been successful. A major player in this coup is a man known as Ahithophel. It's our understanding that Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandpa. So in Ahithophel's reasons for coming against David, uh, some of it may be personal. A lot of it's going to be, of course, political. But Ahithophel is a wise man. He is a wise counselor. But his name has, because of this passage, his wisdom is what falls by the wayside and what he's elevated as and what he's known as is a traitor. So as we go through this text this morning, Ahithophel gives to us an Old Testament image of Judas. And we're going to see this as we go through this morning's text. So 2 Samuel 17 says, moreover, Again, jumping into the middle of the context here. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you When all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the same pleased Absalom and the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, now call Hushai the archite and let us hear what he says too. When Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. So Hushai said to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men and they are enraged in their minds like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in another place. And it will be when some of them are overtaken at first, those who, uh, that whoever hears it will say, There is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, w- uh, will, what does that say? Melt. Just so you know, I write all over my Bible, and I got old man eyes. And when I write words in there, sometimes I write over the text. Will melt completely. I have written despair, just so you know. All right. For all Israel, I mean, I need to suck it up and bring my readers in. All right. Even, uh, sorry, too much of my internal dialogue is coming out. Uh, For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Therefore, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that you will go to battle in person. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall not be... Left so much as one. Moreover, if he is withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will pull it into the river until there is no one, no not one small stone found there. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel, for the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel, to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster, calamity, evil on Absalom. So that's where we're beginning this passage, is intentions. And in life, we have our intentions as we interact with other human beings, they have intentions. There's a great book, if you wanna read it, it's dealing with uh, you know, leadership and ministry, it's called Well-Intentioned Dragons. The thought is, as is, is we interact with, I mean, all you have to do is look in the room. Every single one of us has a different personality and a different perspective. And as those personalities and perspectives and intentions come out, many well-intentioned people can really be a dragon behind the scenes. And I can be the exact same way. I can feel like I am motivated with, with nothing but my heart aimed at the Lord but I can justify my own behavior, my own pride in many different ways where I'm saying that I'm well-intentioned, but I'm really acting like an adversary uh, to the will of God in your life. And we all have to have caution in that area. And that's what this book deals with. But as we're in this text this morning, we're looking at God is standing in opposition to Absalom in seizing the throne Ahithophel's advice is defined as good in the context, and Hushai's advice is being defined as not the best option in the moment for Absalom, because what Hushai is trying to do is give David time to escape. But we're told that God, in standing back and withholding protection in some ways, he's also intervening in other ways, and helping the human hearts to agree with Hushai rather than Ahithophel. Do you see that balance? And the reason why God is intervening is because he doesn't want to bring about success in Absalom's life, but he wants to bring about disaster as a consequence for Absalom's sin. Because Absalom is ultimately trying to be an avenger, self-righteous, Executing God's judgment in David's life, how he sees fit, rather than trusting David with Yahweh is the story. So as we back up to the beginning here, this is what Ahithophel is doing. So his wisdom in the moment is, a, is according to his perspective. His wisdom in the moment is right in its good because David is with a limited number of people, he's with women, he's with children, he's not supplied. He does have a force of soldiers with him, but as they are fleeing and as they are on the run, they are tired. They are weary. Last week we read that they had to be refreshed. They needed space to breathe in midst of the uh, the, the the circumstance that they were in. So Ahithophel's advice to Absalom in the beginning here, let me choose 12,000 this representative of, you know, a thousand men from each one of the tribes, and I will. Ahithophel has something personal against David. He's not looking to send Absalom to go after dad, but I'll go, I'll do this, I'll lead. Give me 12,000 men. And when your dad right now, I guarantee he is weary, he's troubled, he's weak and discouraged. I am going to make him tremble with fear is Ahithophel's advice. And when I go, Absalom, my target is not the people that are with David. It's not his military men. It's not the women. It's not the kids. I will seek that one man, the man who you seek, I will find him, and I will strike him to the ground dead. That's Ahithophel's heart. And not only that, once I get that one man, I will bring back all of the people, and everybody is going to recognize you and your leadership, and all Israel will be at peace underneath your leadership. Good advice to Absalom, yes or no? Great advice in the moment. Does it have some weaknesses and holes? Does it have some assumptions? Is he assuming that the people who are with David, when they see the 12,000 soldiers hot on the heel, that they really will flee? Is that a guarantee? It's not a guarantee. It's a good assumption. It's a good guess. There's wisdom there. There's counsel there. But that's not a guarantee. Is, is he only going to kill David? Or are other people going to die also? More than likely, many people are going to die if Ahithophel goes on this this run. So we're told that, again, in the context that between the two different, the advice and counsel that these two different men are offering, that Ahithophel's advice, it's the right advice for Absalom in the moment. But it's not the advice that God wants. So when Hushai is there, we've already been told that Hushai is a friend of David. David is told Hushai to remain in Jerusalem to be a double agent. To spy for David and to bring about counsel that's going to be of benefit to David and not of benefit to Absalom. And I love this. So back in chapter 15, there's just a quick prayer from David. And David's prayer is, Oh, Lord, I pray that you turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So again, David understands the wisdom of Ahithophel and his counsel. He understands the impact that that can have against him in his circumstances. And immediately, his prayer to God, God, I'm asking that you'd cause this wise man's counsel to become foolishness in the hearers. I think this is a great prayer for today. We, li- we live in a culture that is absolutely in a variety of ways standing in opposition to the will of God. Can we all be in agreement there? And in that, it's that we, th- I think that this is a great prayer for us to re- repeatedly cry out to God. God, those who are standing in opposition to you, very intelligent men and women, Men and women who may be voti- motivated by really good, solid intentions in their own hearts, in their own perspectives in the moment, but it's, that counsel is standing in opposition to you. Lord, we are asking you as your kids, would you bring that counsel, would you cause that counsel To be foolishness. Lift up the counsel of your children. Lift up the counsel of your word. Lift up the counsel of your Holy Spirit in all realms of government, in our households, in our businesses. Lord, may you cause the counsel of foolish men and women to be exposed for the foolishness that it is. And let your counsel, your will, your intentions, your good peaceful and pure intentions in the hearts of human beings. Let your will be done in our life and in our culture. Great prayer. So as Hushai stands up as a friend of David, as a double agent in this moment, he's offering the counsel ultimately that he is offering is to give give David time to get away to a place that's safe. That's all he is buying here is time but as he is offering counsel, he is also speaking truth. Hushai's counsel, it's wise. Every single one of us, we could sit in agreement with Hushai's counsel, which is, you know who your dad is? Your dad's a warrior. He is a man of war. He is experienced. The men who are with him are men of war. As we sit in Memorial Day this weekend and we remember warriors in our culture who have fallen in battle or who serve in that context, there's a very specific warrior culture. If you're part of a military culture, you, you know that and you can recognize that and understand it. If you haven't been part of a military culture, there may be some of that personality and that heart and that drive that you wouldn't be able to identify with. This is hand-to-hand combat. The only projectiles of this period would be a stone or an arrow, maybe a javelin or a spear. When David is being identified as a man of war, David has held a sword in his hand. David has taken his hands and killed other men in battle. Same with the men who are with him. He is experienced. And that's impacted his personality, his aggression. He is an incredible man of poetry. He is a man who has a heart after God's heart. But in his position as king, his role was to take the people out to war, to victory underneath the banner of God, and to bring them back in safety and in peace. That was his role as king. So Hushai is reminding Absalom, who's probably never seen battle, but he was seize the throne for himself, Reminding Absalom, this is who your dad is. You wanna go against your dad that's just been robbed like a mother bear of her cub? How many mama bears are in this room? Does anybody, I mean, just recognize the simple emotion with your children. You know, you have, as a parent, I have a much clearer picture of my sons. I know who they've been since birth. I know how we fought for them. I know a lot more of the private matters of their heart and who they seek to be and all those kinds of things. And somebody in the room, you could interpret one of their behavior as they're being well-intentioned, but you think that it's being motivated by something that it's not, and you come to me and complain about my kids, or you go to them and complain about them. What am I gonna do? What's my instant response gonna be? Papa Bear, Right, because that's, that's my role as parent. Now, if they're wrong, I'm going to address them when they're wrong, but if somebody's going to come against my child, they're underneath my protection, regardless of how old they are, that emotion of papa bear is going to come out. Absalom, you have just robbed your father. Do you really want to go against the warrior papa bear, yes or no? Again, you see what he's bringing. He's bringing about doubt and ultimately, doubt in regards to Ahithophel's advice in this moment. And it's, even if Ahithophel goes right now, there's, there's no doubt. You may find a group of people, but your dad's experienced. He knew how to hide from Saul for 10 years. You think you're going to find him just by sending 12,000 men? Good luck with that. You will not be able to find him. Guarantee he is already hidden somewhere else. Major issue, if you send Ahithophel right now, if you allow him to go and these valiant men of David stand up as warriors in opposition, and some of your men die, Absalom, all the culture is going to say that there is a plague, a plague amongst Absalom's men. So this, uh, there is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. The word for slaughter there is literally there's a plague. So Absalom is in the midst of a coup, he needs to demonstrate himself to be powerful and organized and in control. And if you go after your dad right now and you lose any men, the, the, the gossip is going to go into the culture that there is a plague, there is a disease, there is something unhealthy among the men who are following Absalom. So you can sit in Hushai's council and all of this. So what does he offer instead? Give David time, and to give him time, the council is gather all Israel together. Send out word to all of the tribes. Gather all the men of Israel together and send out all of them together. It's going to take time to get them. It's going to take time to send them out to where David is. So again, what Hushai is doing here buys time. But there's also wisdom there. Gather all, and when we go against your dad, let us go in force. And the counsel, the opposing counsel here too, is also anybody who is supporting your dad, anybody who fled the city with your dad, when we come against them in force, we're going to kill every single one of them. What does Absalom's heart do? Yeah. Absalom's a violent man. He has murder in his heart. He organized the murder of his brother. He has, again, he already has a taste of this. He recognizes as a leader who has just seized control, he needs to deal with all opposition harshly and violently. So Hushai is appealing to this aspect of Absalom's flesh. Ahithophel says he's just going to kill David and bring everybody back. Why do you want to bring back people who are supporting your dad who aren't supporting you right now? You're going to trust those people? And Hushai is standing as evidence of that. Hushai remained behind, and when Absalom saw him, he said, what kind of friend are you of my father? And what does Hushai say? I, I'm, I'm here to serve the king thinking, so again, Hushai is able to stroke Absalom's pride in a variety of ways. The other way that he strokes Absalom's pride is don't send another man to go do your duty work. You go do it. You gather the army together. You're our king. You lead from the front. You lead this war against your father and execute everybody. And it doesn't matter if he flees into a city. You get enough men together, you get the army of Israel together, we shall pull down the walls of that city, and we will kill everyone who is supportive of David. Whose counsel are you for? Are you a little mixed? It's a violent day. We live in a violent culture. This is violent culture, different warfare sit in all the stories of political intrigue and those kinds of things. This chapter, this whole section would make a fabulous movie um, just in its own context, and we watch this kind of story repeat itself often in the movies that we watch on the screen. But when it boils down to the advice of these two men, there are aspects of it that we can be in agreement with either, and we can also poke holes in both of their suggestions. But when you sit and whose advice do you listen to, which advice would you want to listen to? We've already read ahead and we know that who who God is for, that God is for David. But when you sit in this, you have to place yourself like in the context and in the time and in its understanding, and you're sitting there weighing the evidence of, of which option is the best to pursue here do we see absalom turn to prayer at all no we don't see absalom have a relationship with the lord we see absalom in opposition to the lord and that's why the lord is standing as an adversary in absalom's life to bring about evil and calamity and disaster as a consequence for absalom's sin not just against his dad not just against the culture, but ultimately against his relationship with God. I love that verse. Verse 14, though. It's just like Jeremiah 11, being able to press into it with faith. The Lord has purposed, the Lord has given an order to defeat the Good advice of Ahithophel because it was good for Absalom, but God's intention is ultimately to bring about his will in your life. And there's a submission and a surrender to that and an intention. You know, what is your intention when you go to God in prayer? What's your intention when you worship God? What's your intention when you serve him? You know, the thoughts of your heart, the words of your mouth, the behaviors that you engage in, what you know, what's that true intention? And I and I try. There's many times that I fail, of course. I think that I, I always have good intentions. I don't. I'm not a malevolent person. I'm not seeking evil. I'm not seeking my pride. I'm not seeking myself. But what do I find myself doing? You know, looking through the filter of life and circumstances, through how it impacts me, how it's going to negatively affect me, or how it's going to benefit me. Right? Our own decision-making processes every day, and just having this prayer and and understanding that God, I want Your will to be done in my life. When the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, what did He say? Father. Your will be done, not mine. This is that same heart. Father, your will be done. I have, uh, you know my heart. You see me. You understand me. I am exposing all of myself to you, Lord. You reveal what is true to me, where I'm on, where I'm off, and lead my heart forward in a position of trust. So in the story here, verse 15, Hushai is now, again, that double agent, They've just taken his advice, and that's what they're moving forward with. So Hushai goes to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and says, Thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend the night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with them be swallowed up. Now, Jonathan, these are the sons of Zadok and Abiathar. Jonathan and Ahimaz stayed at en Rogel. This is uh, the city of David, Jerusalem. Um, if, you know, if you know Jerusalem at all, the, the Temple Mount, how it's uh, situated on the south side of that is considered to be the city of David. And what Jerusalem was walled in at that time, en Rogel is just outside the walls of Jerusalem. So they're not within the walls in the authority of, of Absalom. They're just out the, outside of the walls at a watering hole, so to say, where there's going to be a lot of people. They'll be able to hide in the crowd, and they're waiting for information to come out, and that's what happens. Uh, they dare not be seen coming into the city. So a female servant would come and tell them. So a female servant's coming out of Jerusalem. Gives them the information so that they can go and tell King David. Verse 18 says, nevertheless, Absalom also has eyes and ears. Says that a lad saw them, and this lad goes and tells Absalom. But both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Beharim. And if you remember from last week, Beharim is the community where... Uh, Shimei was from where he was cursing David as David and the people are fleeing Jerusalem. So this is just on the back side of the Mount of Olives. So they've, they've climbed up over the Mount of Olives. They've got, gotten to Behurim as quickly as they can. Said there's a guy there who has a well in his court and they went down into it. Then in, uh, the women took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground grain on it and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they're hot on their tail, hot on their trail. They said, where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? So the woman said to them, they have gone over the water brook. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Now it came to pass, after they had departed, that they came up out of the well and went and told King David... And David and said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So David and all the people who were with them arose and crossed over the Jordan. By morning light, there, not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. So you can imagine the stress and all the scene. Uh, like I said, great movie roll in the head to, to follow through all the, the action and the stress. Verse 23, it says, Now... When Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. Come back to that in a minute. And David went to Mahanaim. And Absalom crossed over the Jordan. He and all the men of Israel with him. And Absalom made Amasa. Captain of the army instead of Joab. This Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite, who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash. Probably the daughter of Jesse is what's in reference. Sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. Which means, again, Abigail is David's sister. That makes Amasa a nephew. Of David. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi, the son of Nahash uh, from Rabah and the people of Ammon, Makir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentiles and parched seeds, honey and curds. Sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who were with them to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary. They're exhausted and thirsty in the wilderness. And that's where we'll end with communion in that statement. But I want you to back up to the statement about Ahithophel. In the Bible, suicide is never directly denounced. We can sit in the command not to murder, and very clearly, suicide is self murder. So we know that it is not. It's not according to the will of God. Is it a sin? Yes, it's a sin. Yes, it's against the will and counsel of God. Is it an unforgivable sin? No. In our culture, we sit in that top of suicide in very specific context and counsel and wisdom, and it's a very real thought that many people struggle with day in and day out. I have, you know, people in my life that I know that this is a daily struggle, and every day that they continue to breathe is another day of victory in Jesus for them and their lives. So this is something that's very real, that's very serious, and to be addressed as such. In the word of God, and in the Eastern culture, it is based on honor and shame. So when you see suicide in the Bible, more often, well, all the examples that we see of it in the Old Testament, there's, there's an honor that's associated with it. In the sense of Ahithophel is putting his household in order, and is going to die an honorable death by suicide, rather than suffer the consequences of his sin. Because his assumption, we think, is that David is going to win, his counsel has been rejected, David is going to come back as king, and when he comes back as king, he's going to execute me as a traitor. That's our understanding of the motivation behind Ahithophel's heart. But in an honor-shame culture, there's many that would deem, if you get executed by the king, that's going to to be a position of shame. So if you take your own life after putting your own household in order, it's a position of honor. It's cultural junk. There is no honor in Ahithophel, in his counsel, in his heart, and in his mind. He is a dishonorable man. He has been a wise counselor to King David for an extended period of time for, if it's because of Bathsheba, a personal grievance, which totally justified, or for political grievances in regards to David's leadership and the nation. Seems to be a mixture of both of those. He's willing to stand in opposition to the one that he knows that God has called and appointed to that position in all of the context that we've already been in. So already, yeah, he's a smart man. He's a wise man but he's living out multiple actions of foolishness. And ultimately, the foundation of his foolishness is based in he's standing in opposition against God. He is willingly supporting a son who is angry against the father, who is capturing the hearts of the people, bringing about all different kinds of grievances with the current leadership and saying, oh, if I were king, if I were president, if I were the leader, how much better things would be. And Ahithophel is supporting that. In Ahithophel's advice we sat in last week, he counseled Absalom to go sleep with 10 of David's concubines. It's rape. So he's counseling sin. And as we sit in this morning's chapter, in chapter 17, he is counseling, I want to go and I want to commit murder. In oppositions uh, against God, because he feels justified in his behavior, when he realizes that what he, the road that he is going down, he is now he's had the justifications that his intentions are correct. So he's been blind to himself, and now that he's traveled down this road so far, he's realizing that this road is not leading to success. It's going to lead to disaster. He puts his household in order and ignores the disorder of his heart. So look at the passage. He intentionally saddles a donkey, goes to his hometown, makes sure that his will is in order, his debts are paid, his wife and children are going to be taken care of, that the dog's going to be fed tomorrow morning, whatever needs to be done. He's put all this external stuff in order. But we're told on the inside, he's filled with dead man's bones. On the inside, his heart is broken, it is twisted, and in the moment in his life, he thinks that taking his own life has honor rather than subjecting himself to the consequences of his own behavior. Do you see how out of order that is? Again, a culture The culture that this man lived in communicated that it was more honorable for him to take his own life than to live out the consequences of his rebellion. What does Jesus tell us? Live out the consequences of your rebellion. Because who's your king? My thoughts towards you, they're not evil, they're good. I have peace for you. I have a future for you. That future is filled with hope. Not, gee, I wish this had happened, but confident assurance that God is who he claims to be, who he's made himself known to be. We sit in the New Testament character of the traitor, of the betrayer of Judas, Ahithophel, again, he's the Old Testament image of the traitor coming against the anointed king. Judas in the New Testament, whatever he had going on in his heart, whatever path he was traveling down, he ended up pilfering, right? He had his money, hand in the money box. He had, as he is experiencing Jesus' words and Jesus' teaching and the miracles, he witnessed everything that the other disciples did. But there was something in him that he didn't like about Jesus. There was something about Jesus that didn't match his expectations, his understanding, his wants. So as he gets into this moment in Jerusalem where the Jewish leadership is looking to arrest Jesus, Judas is the traitor who organizes the day and the moment behind the scenes for money. And then we're told that after that goes through those events and he betrays Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane, that now Jesus is arrested. Judas is a man who is eaten up with guilt. We're told in regards to his nature and his character, Jesus said it would have been better for Judas to have never been born rather than stand in that position as the betrayer, of the Savior of humanity. What does Judas do? He's guilty, and he knows he's guilty. He goes back to the priests to give the money back. I have betrayed innocent blood is his confession. He knew that he was wrong. He knew that he, what he had done. He woke up to reality in the moment. And in that moment, he determined that hanging himself was better than seeking God for forgiveness in his sins. Now, the word of God is the word of God. God always knew who his betrayer was going to be, knew what his betrayer was going to do, knew that the betrayer was going to hang himself and end his own life and not seek God for repentance. Is any human being too far from the grace and mercy of God? I don't think so. I think as long as a human being still has air in their lungs, that the choice, if you've lived in the midst of ignorance maybe, You've had good intentions, but those intentions have led you down a path that you are being exposed to, that you now know that you are in rebellion against the God who has created you. The solution is not to hide and run and execute. The exhortation from the Word of God is to turn. Make confession. Say it again. Own that Action, that thought, those words, that behavior, whatever it may be, God, here am I. My sins right before me. Wash me, cleanse me, forgive me. I know that there's consequences coming. I know that there's conversations. I know that there's hurt. I know that this is going to be hard. But you've told me that what I intended for myself that's brought about evil in my life, what the devil has intended for evil in my life, what the culture has given me permission to do that has brought about evil and disaster and calamity in my life, you tell me that your mercy triumphs over judgment, that you will cleanse me from all of my sins And whatever the consequences that are necessary to come in my life, Lord, I submit myself to your authority. I submit myself to your will because I trust that you are good and the consequences that are coming my way, I'm going to reap what I sow, but they are worth it because I have the hope and the confidence of eternal life in your son. And this is this end point that the worship team come come on up as we press into communion. We're told that David and the people who are with him, they're exhausted. The circumstance of life, the circumstance of running, all of their thoughts, the stress... You can sit in the emotion of this moment and it's brought about this position of they're weary, they're exhausted, they're hungry, they're thirsty. And this is what we're told that communion is to satisfy As often as we gather together, we're to remember the body and the blood of our God who became a man who died for our sins, who loved us, who taught us, who healed us, who was betrayed, who was hurt, who while he was on the cross, what did he say about people who were well-intentioned as they are mocking him? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive me. For my ignorant sins, for my rebellious sins, I'm wearied with my sin, I'm wearied with myself, I'm wearied with my pride, I'm exhausted. The the food that I taste in this world, all these other things that I seek after, Lord, I have experienced that nothing satiates my soul other than you. So as we turn to worship again in communion, communion uh, table is open to you. I've been long-winded this morning, so grab communion and uh, have communion just between you and the Lord or with those who are around you. We have a couple of songs of worship to celebrate. Again, in this moment, don't, uh, don't run by the moment of the Holy Spirit that may be pricking at something in your heart like he pricked at fell, like he was pricking at Absalom, like he was pricking at David. Lord, here am I. Speak to me this morning. Wash us and cleanse us through the blood of your son. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. But more than anything, Lord, we rejoice in you. You are worthy to be worshipped. You are worthy to make confession to. You are worthy to be trusted. You are worthy to be hoped in. You and you alone are our God. Be glorified. Amen.